0: Well, we're in a series called The Book of Signs. It's a section of the Gospel of John. John, as he wrote his Gospel, he wrote his Gospel quite a few years after the other three Gospels, and he had one purpose in mind when he wrote his his Gospel. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but they are written... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the Gospel of John was John wanted you to meet Jesus. He wanted you to believe that Jesus was the King and to give for you to give your allegiance to and to follow Jesus. And John does this through various ways in his gospel, and uh, some of you know his his gospel is just a beautiful story as you read it through. And one of the ways that he does it, one of the central ways that he communicates the truth about Jesus, is he presents us with seven miracles, what he calls seven signs. And in fact, as I've mentioned before, all the other gospels have numbers, significant numbers of miracles, but John. Just has seven signs, seven miracles, that he uses as a basis to declare who Jesus is, and we've been going through those, the Book of Seven Signs, and so I want to look at a new one today in John chapter five, uh, sorry, John chapter five, verse one. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in, in, is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in the Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. colonnades and in these lay a multitude of invalids blind lame and paralyzed one man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years when jesus saw him laying there and knew he had already been there for a long time he said to him do you want me to be, do you want to be healed the sick man answered him and said sir i have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while i am going down the another steps down before me jesus said to him get up Take up your bed and walk. Where am I? I'm not moving, am I? Can you move me on, Chris? Ah, now we got it. No, it won't go after that one. Is there any more things there? Oh, Chris is gone. Oh, I'll just keep going. You'll have to, you'll have to do an unusual thing and look in your Bibles. So when Jesus saw him laying there, he said, get up and take your bed up. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. And now the day was the Sabbath. You see, there was this place that was where the sick and suffering silently endured their pain just outside the walls of Jerusalem, where the bruised and battered waited for help that never seemed to come, where the failures and the forgotten lives were found that lived in quiet desperation. It was there that we find Jesus doing his work. And this is the third sign of the seven signs of Jesus that John recounts. It's the story of the paralyzed man. Now, as the story tells us, this man had been paralyzed for 38 years. And he was living in this place, in this pool at Bathsheba. It's on the northern side of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, the Sheep Gate. Now this is where the sheep used to be brought in for the sacrifices. It was just outside the city um, area, and it was a, a pool, and it was fed by natural springs of water. And around it, they'd built these colonnades, these porches with roofs over them. It was kind of a, side, a five-sided kind of thing. Um, it, it's actually very massive. I mean, and the story that I've always thought about it, I've thought about it as being quite a small little bathing area. But in actual fact, uh, and I did have a picture for you, which we're not seeing, um, that they had – it was actually quite a massive building that was quite significant. And people would come there and they'd gain access around it. And um, they lived there. Some of them even lived there. it had become a place where people came to receive all kinds of treatment to, uh, for the, um, from these waters – now, the pool was fed by mineral waters by a natural spring that occasionally bubbled up, and so it had become a, a story that when the waters bubbled up, an angel was there stirring them up. It was a legend that had grown up around it. And so these mineral waters, historically and archaeologically, they think did have some minerals and probably did help people with skin diseases, um, you know, that had helped and assisted them. But there's no real um, accounts or, uh, of healing to, that have occurred Beyond that, but because of the healings that had occurred in the skin situation and like that, it had become this place where people out of desperation. And you can imagine those who were dying in those days, there wasn't a lot of places to help them. So anywhere that there could be this, I mean, even today we see it, where people will rush anywhere where they think some healing kind of could have happened. And so this existed for the Jews. But interesting, it had also become a place of great healing for the Romans. And in archaeological time, um, digs, they've now found actual areas in that area, right in that particular thing by that pool where the Romans also had built healing centres for them to be healed. So it had become quite this focus in the whole of the city of Jerusalem of being a place of healing. And so it was a place where both the Jews and the pagans came to get well. And so Jesus, in a sense, is not only the hope for the Jews to get healed, he was also a hope for, for the Romans as well because of the desperation that everybody who was around there would have had for that. And um, it's really kind of a, a situation, really, that's a picture of humanity, isn't it, that we all need that healing of Jesus to come and that, they, that Jesus was the one who would bring that healing. Now, the... The story to, uh, John tells us has this happened in Jerusalem. It's interesting that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, almost all the accounts of Jesus' ministry is actually in Galilee. If you, only took, if you didn't have the Gospel of John, we would actually think that Jesus' ministry only happened for about 12 to 18 months. But because of Jesus, the way John wrote and referenced us through the different feasts and festivals that occurred in Jerusalem and Jesus going back and forth, we know that his ministry was for three years. And it was after one of these feasts... We're not told which one, that John arrives from the, and comes to the north gate, known as the Sheep Gate. And he comes to this crowded area where all these invalids, these sick people are all waiting to be healed. And he comes in there and he comes and he focuses on one person. He's going to heal only one person. There's a multitude of people there. It's like a whole hospital. I mean, you've got to imagine this. It's this big area, far bigger than this room, of sick people all laying around just in the absolute dire straits. No possibility of healing except perhaps this legion of a miracle might happen one day if the waters get stirred. And so the agony, the desperation, the the anxiety that would have just been in that area in walks Jesus. And he comes in. And he comes in and he comes to heal one person because he's bringing us a sign. And Jesus is aware that this man's been there for a long time. The, the Bible tells us he's had paralysis for 38 years, so we can presume that he's been there for most of that time. And he comes to this man and he says, What do you want? And the man probably thinks, Oh, <clears throat> wow, this is awesome. This is this person who's coming, he, he's wanting to assist me. He's going to help me get into the pool. I mean, that, that would have been his level of hope. And he's thinking, Oh, great, you know, because as he says, every time something happened, He never had anyone to help him into the pool. And here's this kind man coming up to him and saying, hey, can I help? That's the level of hope that this guy would have had. He's thinking that maybe Jesus is going to be able to help him get into the water. But Jesus had far, far different ideas. He turns to the man, he looks at the man, and he says, take up your bed and walk. And in that moment, the man's healed. Because Jesus is the word of God. And remember, God sent his word to heal. Psalm 107, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is the word. He's the word of God made flesh. And Jesus commands this man get up. You know, and, and even in this story, as John tells us, it's actually very, very prophetic. Because as he tells us a story, he's referencing the one day when everyone will get up, the resurrection. And in fact, if you carry on reading this this chapter right the way through, you begin to see Jesus, his next uh, encounter with the leaders, the religious leaders, he starts talking about the time when everybody will get up. Verse 25, he goes on and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in him, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus is saying to us that this sign is a prophetic act of what's going to happen for all those that believe in him, that, they're going to, that every man and woman and child will get up. And so he tells, he commands this person who's been paralyzed for 38 years to get up to take his mat and walk. And so the, little man, the man will pick up his little mat. It probably was a woven mat, a bed. And um, so he'll be able to go through it. Uh, and it would have been his, his part of his life. Look at this, here we go. Just take it back a bit. There's the pool there. So you can see um, the te- Temple Mount, which is a big building there, and see the pools right next to it. So, it's, I mean, it's significantly smaller than Temple Mount, but it's actually quite a big area down there being built. And Antonia, which I've talked about in the past, that was where the um, pilot would live when he was in Jerusalem, and it's part of the pools being dug over there. So here's this man, he's, he's on his little mat, it's woven his beard, he's been, that's what he's been living on, and Jesus says, pick it up and go. Pick up this mat that's really his whole life and go. And so he picks up his bed and he begins to walk, he takes up his bed. That in a sense was his home. And here's Jesus saying, this is no longer your home your residence has changed your address has changed no longer are you going to be categorized as one of the sick you're going to be one of those who know the life and this all happens it says now the day that, the, the, now that day was a sabbath and this is a huge thing the sabbath you see as we continue on reading in verse 10 we we learn what this means because it was a sabbath so the jews or the judeans now, everybody in this story is Jewish, obviously. But Jesus used the word Jew, when he's talking about that. He's actually talking about the Jerusalem Jews. And the Jerusalem Jews were a whole different kettle of fish to the, just the average Jew. They were very religious. They were very um, law-based. They were very controlling. You know, they lived in Jerusalem around the temple, and so it was a lot of law, re- whereas those who lived out more in the... Um, uh, farming areas it were a little bit more easygoing and life-loving. But the Jews in Jerusalem were demanding of the law. And so they were always someone that was, always, they were a different ilk. And they're always going to be in conflict with Jesus. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, answer, uh, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. (laughs) Jesus was never particularly fond of crowds. Afterwards, Jesus found found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Listen, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know, the Pharisees had 39 rules or 39 activities that they considered work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. They actually made a list of 39 activities. Things that, because the Torah, of course, says that you should not work on the Sabbath. So what does that mean? Well, if someone says you're not allowed to work, we've well, got to say, well, what does it mean to work? So the Pharisees, bless their hearts, decided, being zealous for rules, they would make a list of rules. And they made 39 of them. Now, I don't know about you, but that so disturbs my calm. Why not just add another one and make a nice round 40? But mind they went with 39, so that's what we've got to live with. So they had 39 rules, uh, activities, sorry, that they considered were work, that were a no-no on the Sabbath. And among them was moving from one place to another. You weren't allowed to shift, enough words. On the Sabbath, you couldn't move. So you couldn't get to some friends, couldn't say, hey, Kev, bring the trailer down, we're going to load up, we're going to move. Because on a Sabbath, it was illegal to move. And see, this is what was exactly happening with this man who was being healed. He was moving. Because remember, Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. And that was his place. Leave the place you're at, leave the place of illness that is no longer your identity, that is no longer your home, and go and find somewhere new to live. So the man rolls up his mat, puts it over his arm and starts wandering down the street. And the Pharisees see this and they totally freak out. He gets busted by these religious police. What do you mean you're moving? What do you mean you're going from one place to another? It's irrelevant that you've been crippled for 38 years and you've got up and walked. You are breaking the religious rules. It's the Sabbath. You can't do it on the Sabbath. And of course the man's defense is, hey, man, I don't know. I'm just doing what the guy, he healed me. It's his fault. Because, you know, And the, and the, the, the responses of the Judeans are just astounding. You know, you were paralyzed for 38 years, some guy healed you, but who told you you could shift? Do you see the religiousness that was controlling them and bounding them? The Judeans cannot perceive Jesus as a miracle worker. They perceive him as a Sabbath breaker, and they can't get beyond that. They are more concerned about rules being kept than people getting well. Let's say it this way, that you know, to find Jesus, they were looking for Jesus, but they were looking for Jesus as a rule breaker rather than a miracle worker. They were missing the very thing, the very work that God was doing there because they were so intent on their religion and they lost what Jesus was doing. And we need to learn something from this. We need to learn that if we're focused on the rules, we can, we're likely to miss what the Spirit is doing. If we're focused on the rules, we're likely to miss what the Spirit is doing. You know, now, look, I know we have to have some rules. I understand that, and I accept that. It's part of life. I mean, it's part of family. It's part of church. It's part of work. It's part of civil society has to have rules. But what I am saying is that we should never have rules, that in our Christian faith, we should never be sorry focused on on rules more than the relationship with the Spirit of God. That's the most significant things. Being a Christian is not adhering to the Christian rule book. It's allowing the Spirit of God to have manifest presence in our lives and to lead us. Because you know what? What the Spirit is doing is so often wild. He's free. He blows where the Spirit wills, And that's what we want. The Spirit has little regard for petty rules. We see it again in John chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. And this is why the, Jesus, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, my Father is working until now, and I am working. So see, here it all is. Here's Jesus. He heals a man after for, who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Jesus engages with him, tells him he's got well. He's walking down the street. The Pharisees catch him and say, you can't do this. You can't do this. And Jesus' defense is, my father is working until now and I am working. And you've got to understand how provocative that was. You've got to understand how provocative that was. I mean, Jesus said it to, on purpose because he wanted to get on their goat. First of all, he calls, Jesus God, calls God his father. And that's a huge thing. Throughout the Gospel of John, you'll constantly see John referencing how Jesus refers to the to God as Father. It's, it's one of his overarching themes, consistently that Jesus relates to God as Father. You see it over and over, even in the final room. Remember, in the upper room, he says to Philip, "If you've seen me, you've what seen the Father." And so here's Jesus provocatively challenging the Pharisees that God is his Father. But not only that, that God is his father, he's also challenging them by saying that God is working on the Sabbath. I mean, everything that they'd been led to believe, everything that they had built their whole structure around. And Jesus says, nope, that's not how it's like. He says, the reason things are happening on the Sabbath is because that's what God is doing. God is my dad and today he's working. And I can promise you, they did not like that at all. That kind of really, it completely struck at the very core of their being. You know, and of course, Jesus knows that these statements like that are going to force these people to make hard decisions about him. And he does it deliberately. He does it deliberately. We see not a convenient Christ, but a controversial Christ. Jesus is telling the Judeans that he's working because his father's working. You know, God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. But Jesus insists that God is not inactive in the world. God is, in fact, working in the world. And the work of God is what? It's to heal the world. The work of God is to heal the world. Wherever you find brokenness and sickness and disease, then that's where you'll find God at work. You see, if you're working with God, that's what God is doing. He's active in his own creation. He created, he rested, but the world got broken and sick, and God has now been working ever since to make it well. And whenever we work to make the world better, when we work to heal the world, we are working with God. See, there's a deeper, more mysterious sign for us than to see Jesus just saying, the Father is working, as so am I. For, but the Judeans say, but it's the Sabbath. It's not a day for work. But there's a discrepancy between what they're saying and what Jesus is saying. There's this discrepancy. And in a sense, it could be described, if you like, in a way of different time zones. You know, now we all understand time zones. You know, the world's round, the moon goes round. Well, most of us believe the world's round. And, you know, the, the world has different time zones, different things in it. I mean, for us... We talk generally on a Monday morning. We love to talk to Kim and and our family in the States. And, of course, we're talking to them Monday morning, but for them it's Sunday afternoon. So when we're talking to them, they're telling us about what they did at their church this morning when they went to church and the bike rides they had in the woodland area up behind their house today and what they'd seen and the kids are sharing all those things with us. We're in two different time zones And so here we see, in a sense, this is what's happening. The Judeans are still living in a time zone where they are ruled by the rules and regulations. It's the seventh day. But Jesus says, listen, I'm living in the first day or the eighth day. It's a day of new creation. It's a day of anticipation of his resurrection. It's where the new creation that he's about to bring is going to break forth. You see, Jesus was from the future, and he was demonstrating what was going to be happening in the future. And not only is Jesus from the future, but every person who has been baptised into the body of Christ is a future uh, person, a future from the future. And it's one thing that pleases me about having a baptismal pool up here. You know, we didn't have a baptismal pool in the church for 20-odd for years. And when we were even doing this place, people said to us, oh, you know, some people said, let's get rid of that. We'll have more space on the stage. We can do something about a baptismal pool, bring a baptismal pool in. But, you know, I don't, I've got a minute. I didn't even, at the time, I just knew, no, we've got to have a baptismal pool up the front here. And now as I've, this year, just God's spoken to me how central it is. Have the baptism? You know, see, the baptismal pool, in a sense, is like a time machine. Do you know that? It's like a DeLorean with a flux capacitator or you know, the TARDIS if you're into Doctor Who. Because when you're baptised, you join Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And you pass. You actually pass from death to life. But more than that, in a mysterious way, you become a future being. No longer is your life rooted in this world. It's rooted in the future world the world not yet seen, the future reality, that's where we get to now live. That's where our being gets draws its strength from. That's where we draw, you know, so while things may be, be happening around us, sometimes confusing things happening around us, that's not what we draw our strength from. That's not what we draw our hope from. That's not what we draw our peace from. We draw it from the future presence that we have been called to live in. We are eighth-day people. We live in the new creation. We are from the future. And that's why we do things like That's why Christians are so involved in justice, because in the future kingdom, there is justice. That's why so for, throughout history, Christians have fought against slavery, and the, because slavery is not a thing from the future. Bondage of other human beings is not. We are called to be um, future-minded people, Whatever belongs to the age to come, we need to seek to embody it now to help the, with the help of the Holy Spirit. We gain a prophetic imagination about well, that which is to be, and we try to embody it into the here and now. It's actually got a t- terminology. It's called prophetic untimeliness. See, we live in tension because we live in the now, but we draw our reality from the future. We've been called into the time machine called baptism and we've been joined with Christ in the resurrection and we now we now live in that reality. We have the strength of Christ in the here and now to bring and speak the reality of heaven into being. We seek to embody into this world's present status quo a reality of the future. We seek to be people that embody in flesh and incarnate the reality of Christ here and now. As John said, as he is, so Not as he was, so as he is. We are in the world. As he is right now, we are called. We are not accommodating ourselves. See, we must not accommodate ourselves to the politics and to the culture and to the view of this world because we are from the future. And we are called to be kingdom carriers, releasing the very things of the kingdom of God amongst everyone we encounter. And when we read the Gospel of John... We shouldn't just see it as a group of interesting stories um, interspread with some teaching. We need to understand that it's Jesus mandating and releasing the the whole of heaven onto planet Earth. It is a gripping battle between heaven and the forces that would resist God's rule. And it's not only for Jesus' time, but it's setting it up for you and I to be carriers of the future. So today, when you go from here, and you encounter other people in whatever situation they're in, you can speak life. You can speak hope. You can speak peace into their lives. Because, see, we have a high calling because we are called to do the works of Jesus today. Amen? Amen? Let's stand, shall we?